Uh, what we're doing every week this semester is we're going back to Genesis, the beginning, to see if in fact maybe your questions about Christianity, maybe even your boredom about Jesus, maybe it stems from the fact that you never understood the beginning. In the same way that you'd be confused if you entered a movie or a story halfway through. And so every week we're going back to kind of season one, episode one, and looking at the foundation. And tonight we examine the beginning of just, just what went wrong. And I think this is fascinating because all of us have had these moments. I've sat with, uh, with quite a few of you sometimes in college when, and when the breakup happened. And it's sad. And I've sat across from the table and... The question is, like, what, like, what went wrong? Things were so good. And you look up and months later or even years later and it just is in shambles. And what you try to do is to work your way back to the beginning and figure out what went wrong. And the Bible's explanation of just what went cosmically wrong is right here. It says, let's go back to the beginning. But the way that things went cosmically wrong, I'm going to suggest, is still a window into how the spiral of temptation in our own sin happens today. So let's examine it together. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, would you um, help us? Uh, we admit that um, we're needy. We admit that we're, we have tons of blind spots. We don't even know ourselves like we should. Uh, much less do we... Uh, know you uh, who are infinite and eternal and unchangeable. And so Lord, would you meet us in our confusion? Lord, would you meet us in sin tonight? Uh, Would you meet us in joy uh, and enable us to understand your word and to see Jesus? We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Alright, Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. Grass withers, flowers fade. The word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, I'm going to look at two things tonight. Let's see the craftiness of Satan or the serpent, and then the character of God. The weight of our time is going to be spent on the craftiness of Satan. That's the weight of the text. Um, so, a few things about the craftiness of Satan, verse 1 through 6. In this true story that we're all living, this is the entrance of the, uh, of the antagonist, right? Verse 1, in the Garden of Eden... We're introduced to a serpent. Who's this serpent? Later on in the Bible, it'll be made abundantly clear that this serpent is Satan. Whatever questions, or it might even seem silly to you tonight, that there really is this, this, this person, this powerful force called Satan, the Bible says it's true. 
And if you don't believe that, I would invite you to try to come up with a better explanation of evil in this world. I, I would challenge you with that. But what the Bible says is that Satan at one time was this glorious, powerful angel. But he ends up twisting. And he's the enemy now. And he opposes God. He opposes everything that's good. He hates everything that reminds him of God. Which means this, don't forget. We spent two weeks studying that you and I are made in God's image. So he hates God's image. Because you remind him of God. And so we get this description of the serpent that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And there's the tipping cap. There's kind of the, here's what to expect from from this individual. He's crafty. And that can have positive connotations. But here, the weight of it, the word, it means cunning and deceptive. And there's your clue. Satan and temptation and sin always traffics in deception. It always wants to distort reality. That's why he'll be called the father of lies later on. And so that's why all the like, contemporary images of Satan of being this like, big person with a pitchfork. and you know, That's why those are silly. Because that's way too obvious. That's not crafty. That's not subtle. That's not deceitful. Temptation and sin, it begins with deception. Which means you can't identify it. And that's what happens here, right? It it just begins with a chat. Nothing too scary. Evil poses as something harmless. Maybe even interesting. Why is the snake talking to me, right? But that's the temptation. It seems like it's not a big deal. But it's a very big deal. This is the turning point of the world. This is when everything goes wrong. But that's the craftiness. Right? Wasn't this what was so fascinating about Breaking Bad? Right? They begin, they ask the question, how does a normal, struggling high school chemistry teacher named Walter White, how does he end up in a life of crime selling crystal meth? And it starts slowly, doesn't it? It starts just rationalizing here and there, I've got a family to take care of, and then it ends in places you never thought it would end up. Right? No one starts out saying, I want to become a junkie. They don't do that. But this is the point. Satan and temptation rarely is in your face and says, let's do evil today. No. Like, no one ruins their marriage through adultery standing at the, vow, standing at the altar next to their um, spouse saying, I'm gonna me- I can't wait to ruin this. Right? Nobody does that. Instead, it's subtle. It's crafty. It's deceptive. And so the first step of the spiral of sin, of temptation, is to present sin as no big deal. That it's something safe to dabble in. Right? Look, to physically hurt my kids whom I love, that seems ridiculous to me. Okay? But to raise my voice in anger? I don't know. That sneaks up on me. And it kind of controls my kids. It works. Right? Destroying friendships, that doesn't sound too appealing. Who sets out to do that? But passing along some of that, like, did you hear what she did stuff that feels so good? That sneaks up to you. Right? Being plastered. Maybe sometimes. I I realize you can set out to do that. 
normally being plastered isn't like the idea of what we're shooting for. That's not too tempting. But I don't know. Taking the edge off socially so you can relax and enjoy, that's tempting. And so to expect temptation to be obvious and easy to resist, that's foolish. That's where it starts. So first, Satan and temptation traffics in the world of deception is always crafty. Second of all, the next thing that happens is you see that there's a distortion of God's character and God's law. What the serpent does here, it's so subtle, I think you almost miss it. He says this, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look what he's doing. It sounds kind of right, but there's a twist. Because back in chapter 2, God looks at Adam and and the emphasis is this. You are free to eat of every tree in the garden. That's the emphasis. Except this one. And Satan just ever so subtly flips it, doesn't he? And he says, did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Did you hear that suggestion? Let's start focusing on what God is withholding rather than what he's giving. And there's the distortion. Let's start... Let's start picturing God as not being good, as not being generous. He's kind of withholding from you, isn't he? And then it keeps going, right? In verse 2, did you notice this? The woman adds to God's law. She says, well, I I can eat of any of the tree. But God said if I eat of this tree or if I touch it, I will die. God never said that. He never said you couldn't touch it. She's beginning to doubt the goodness of God. She's beginning to think that God isn't a God who loves to share who loves to give. She's starting to see him as a withholding master that's oppressive, that's about just sheer power. And it keeps going. And the serpent becomes more and more overt. He says, you're not going to die. You will become like God. And there it is. You know what their answer should have been at that moment when Satan said, you'll become like God? They should have said this. We already are like God. He made us in His image and has shared everything with us. There's nothing else that we could possibly want that God has already given, that God hasn't given us. But they doubt the goodness of God and the spiral keeps going. And I think if we examine our hearts and the way temptation works, that's it. The sin behind all other sins is that I begin to doubt the goodness and the love of God. As soon as I begin to think that God doesn't have my best interest in mind, then His law seems silly. His command seems silly. It's over. So first temptation says sin's not that big of a deal. Second of all, you start seeing God as He's just this withholding God who doesn't love you, who doesn't have your best interest in mind. And so what ends up happening is His commands, they seem like a fence around an amusement park. Like there's just all this good, life-giving, fun stuff going on and you just can't have it. Honestly, like isn't that what's driving the question? Like how far is too far? Like listen to the sentiment behind that question. God's commands, they can't, they don't feel like they're for my flourishing or good. They restrict life. They kill life. So how can I get as close as possible? We began in the wrong place. We think His law isn't for our good. Isn't that what's driving so much of of your bitterness towards God in this kind of self-righteous way? Because some of you think, well, 
I've been good. I've been trying to do things the right way. I'm better than other people, and yet he has all the fun. She has all the friends. He's dating so-and-so, and I'm lonely. And there becomes this distortion of God that he's withholding from me. And all kinds of bitterness grows out of that distortion of God. Or even, like, even the way we begin to treat good things, we, we, we so distort who God is that God gives us good things that we can't even enjoy them because we're scared if we do, he's going to take them away. What kind of father is that? And so, first, sin's no big deal. Second of all, he distorts the character of God and therefore his law. And then third, he distorts the consequences of sin. Right? By verse 4, the deception is no longer subtle. It's just this all-out attack on God and his trustworthiness and his word. And the serpent, the father of life, accuses God of being a liar. He just says, God said you'll die. No, you won't. You won't die. What God is doing is keeping you from real life. You will not die. Instead, your life will be enhanced. That's the temptation. But see, that's the lie. Because sin, if God designed us, if God made us in His image, He knows how we work. And so sin is actually against our design. And if you, if you put water into a car, into a, into a car's gasoline tank, the car will break down. It's just the reality of the way the car is made. Sin will always dehumanize us. Always, Because it's against how God made us to function. Sin will always bring consequences. Always. Because it's not how we were made to live. But that's the temptation. is to think there are no consequences. This is life. Thomas Brooks, this old Christian Puritan writer, he said, one thing that Satan always does is he shows us the bait and he hides the hook. And that's just a powerful picture. This is how it works, Right? We start saying things like, well, everybody cheats this way in college. It's not that big of a deal. It's the way that we make it through. But did you hear it? No consequences. What if the consequences aren't just about getting caught? What if there is like a hardening and a pattern that's developing in your life of cutting corners where, yeah, everybody else is doing it? I don't know. But you end up in a fraudulent business and you just thought it was the way that everybody else did it. Like something's really happening. Right? This is the lie of pornography. I'm all alone. It's just me and my phone. It's not hurting anyone. That's the lie. There are no consequences. Yet how far into it do you begin to realize it really has dehumanized you? It's made people just simply objects for your using and pleasure. There was, a, uh, there was a pastor that I knew, actually, who after about 15 years of ministry, like good ministry, he started resenting his wife. And he had decided it was just time to divorce her, and there was another girl he was interested in, and he was just going to marry her. And so his friends and even former students who were converted in his ministry, they started coming to him and pleading with him, like, don't do this. They started saying things, think about your kids. This is going to damage them. Think about your wife. Think about your own soul. And after he listened to them for a while, over and over again, he finally said, look, I actually believe everything that you're telling me. I think it's wrong. I think it's destructive. He said, I'm going to divorce my wife, and I believe that Jesus is going to find me on the other side. Look, I I don't know his heart, okay? But I do know this. He died with a very hardened heart towards Jesus. 
And this is the temptation. Realize it. When you tell yourself, I'll change when I'm out of college. Like the... These are my kind of four or five years to, to just kind of have some fun and then I'll settle down. Do you see what you're saying? I can live consequence free for four years and Jesus will meet me on the other side. Maybe. But I don't know. Like how many of you tonight in a moment of honesty would admit the pain of disobedience that has come into your life? It's real. So you see... Sin's no big deal. There's a distortion of who of God's character. There's a distortion of consequences. And then finally, there's just a distortion of God's authority. Right? Follow the reasoning of temptation. If it's no big deal, if God is withholding, if He's not good, if He doesn't have my best interest in mind, and the consequences, they're just kind of scare tactics to keep me from real life, then what's the conclusion? I got a right to call the shots. I can say what's good and bad. I can say what's good for me, not him. If sin isn't a big deal, if God isn't good, if there are no consequences, then I get to be the judge of reality and not God. And that's the final temptation. You become your own authority. You become your own king. And at that point, rationalization of sin, it just happens. It's over. When we become the judge of reality and not the one who made us and loves us, then it's over. And look, and look, if you come to RUF enough, you will know that like we don't treat like drinking as like the sin, okay? I think, I think actually self-righteousness is the scariest sin, okay? But but here, like, realize this. What is going on in the heart? is a question of authority with you. Right? The underage drinking question, whatever, however you're dealing with it, you want to say this, well, look, my parents don't care, or I've thought about it, and I just don't think it's wrong, and it doesn't really matter, and it doesn't affect me, or as long as, as, long as I don't do this, it's okay. Okay, take a step back. Whatever you think about that. But look at what's going on in your heart. What I'm asking you to see is not so much that you're drinking under 21. It's you just want to call the shots. You just want to be your own authority. That's the end game. And you're showing that you think submission to the Lord is a bad thing. Is a thing that takes away life. Just look at the heart. That's what God is interested in. Then look at verse 6, right? She says, well... She looks at this fruit and she says, this is good for food and it's pleasurable. And look what's starting to happen. She's saying, well, this forbidden food, I mean, I, I can see how this would be good, right? I mean, it, I can eat it. I'm hungry. It'll, it'll help me accomplish what I need to accomplish. And that's it. The distortion is happening. We start justifying sin. We say, well, well this will help me get what I really need. And we'll just say things like, everybody cheats. And everybody does. And if I don't cut corners... I won't get into grad school. I won't be able to support my imagined spouse one day. Um, and there's the rationalization. I, I got to do this to achieve what's ultimately good for me. I know what's best and I'll call the shots. And the last step in rationalizing sin and living this distorted reality is we end up just coveting. Right in verse 6, it says, From the woman's perspective, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word desire is the same word that's going to, it's the word coveting. 
And so here's where she ends. The thing that will bring death, she is convinced she can't live without it. The thing that will destroy her is the very thing that she thinks, I have to have this to have life and to be okay. It's the language of idolatry. It's the ultimate distortion. We start clinging to the things that will actually kill us and think, no, this is what makes me okay. And that's when, that's when we're there. And so it's one thing to, to strive for godliness, to strive to be good. It's a whole other thing if being good is what makes you feel okay and what makes you feel alive. Because at that point, you have to be better than other people. And you'll sit in judgment of people. You'll hide from all kinds of sins within you because you can't just admit those things. And you'll become hardened. And you'll become self-righteous. It's the idolatry of being the good guy or the good girl. It's one thing to be healthy. That's great. It's another thing to only be okay if you look a certain way or get the looks from somebody. And the second that starts, there's just a rationalization of all kinds of sin and slavery. I say that with tenderness. I know it's hard. But we just start looking at things besides God and saying, this is what's life. I have to have this. And it's the very thing that will destroy us. So where is the hope? Right? This is an incredibly dark chapter of the Bible. I, I, we're supposed to feel that. I hope you felt the darkness like within, within me. I hope you've come to the conclusion, this is what Genesis 3 wants to tell you. Sin is not just out there. It's like in here. And it's a lot deeper than I thought. You're supposed to realize that we, I constantly distort the character of God. So where do I turn? Well, what about this? What about the best thing that you could do is turn right back to the character of God who you've distorted and who I've distorted and who I've rejected? You see, look at the character of God, verse 7 through 10. After Adam eats, the devastation sets in. Their eyes are opened. Actually, like Satan said, their eyes are opened. But instead of them finding satisfaction, life fulfillment, they're open to shame and pain and guilt. We'll talk about that next week. And they just hide. And they realize that instead of God's law being a fence around amusement park, it was actually a fence around death pits. And it was for their good. And what does God do at this point? I think this is amazing. What would you expect him to do if he was the distorted God who we think he is? If he's a God who's a tyrant and he's withholding from us and he's just about power? I'll tell you what that God would do. He would just wipe us off the face of the earth and start over. That's what I would do. Right? If I created people in my image and did nothing but love them and care for them and they said, I don't really want you, I think you're, you're withholding... Okay, I'll just start over. But what does he do? In verse 8, they hear God walking towards them. They hear God calling out to them, where are you? He comes for them. Like, it's amazing. He comes after people who are hiding from him. He comes after people who have rebelled and distorted him and run from him. And he comes after them like a lover. Calling them out. Yes, a jealous lover who is, he is angry at Adam and his wife for running headlong into sin, for not trusting him, for 
for bringing a truckload of damage into their life and into the world that he loves, but he comes after them. He starts calling them out of hiding, calling them to trust him again, calling him to trust his goodness. Because my wife, um, because she loves people a lot better than I do, uh, one time she dragged me to this um, being a foster parent interest meeting uh, in, uh, in Startville and so one of the things they did is they, they had this, this foster mom just kind of tell the story of what it's like and, and they talked about the joys and how hard it is and one of the things that she talked about was she said, you know, one time we, we had this girl and she said sometimes foster kids, they're known as runners. And it actually makes sense, right? If throughout the childhood there's never been any sense of stability, always moving from house to house, then it just feels more stable to be on the run. It just feels more natural to be away. And so she said, you know, they, they had a runner, and what they had done is they developed this just system in their neighborhood with all their friends. And it might be two in the morning, and they would realize she's gone, like she ran. And so what she said to do, she'd pick up her phone, she'd call all her friends on the street, they'd all get out of bed, they'd get in their cars, they'd get on their bikes, they'd get on, you know, on their feet with their flashlights, and they'd go out looking. And they wouldn't quit until they found her. Right, hiding somewhere in a ditch or something, and they would bring her back, and they'd sure that they love her, and they'd sure that they weren't sending her away, and it would happen again. And I thought to myself, that's actually an amazing picture of Jesus, and an amazing picture of actually what his people, the church, are supposed to be like. That we are all, if we're honest, we're just runners. The The answer to temptation, whether you're on the front end of temptation right now or you've looked up after four weeks of college and you are just all into it or you've been running for years, the answer wherever you're right now is to look at the character of God. That's the answer. To stop and see that He is a God who runs after sinners. That's who He is. Whatever you want to think of Him, that's who He is. And the road to hell is is not made up of of the bad people. It's made up of people who refuse to see that God is a God of grace. The world is not divided into good and bad. It's divided into the proud and the humble. Those who have finally believed that God is better than they think. He runs after people hiding from Him in porn. He runs after people hiding from him in self-righteousness. He runs after people hiding from him and fill in the blank. No matter where you are, the answer is to turn and to see that he's good. And he's a God of mercy. And he's one of abundant forgiveness. Once God took a step into the garden, he wasn't going to stop until he went to a cross. Right, The final error that the serpent made, he had so distorted the character of God, he underestimated God's love for his people. He thought he had won. But what he didn't know is that God was going to keep running after us until he took on flesh and faced down Satan in the wilderness, like Robbie said, and faced the same temptation where Satan says, oh, your, your father's not good, and he keeps saying he is. He resists temptation in every place that we fail because we need his perfection and his righteousness. Because we need a God of grace. That's the character of God. 
who loves us so much that He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And He comes after us. If your temptation tonight is to our end, if your, if your takeaway is, wow, I give in to temptation more than I want, I'm going to try harder tomorrow, I'm going to obey better, if that's your takeaway, you've just missed it. I mean, those are good things. That ultimately is bad news. This is good news, even in Genesis 3. The takeaway is to see the character of God who loves mercy and loves grace and will come after you. Will you see it? Will you believe that's who God is? That will start changing things. Then, you might, then we start seeing that sin is actually serious. Then we may begin to see that man, even stuff that doesn't make sense to me, if the God behind those things is this God who would love me so much like this, I can trust Him. I can trust Him. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you... Um, I don't know. You are a God of truth. And we traffic in uh, distortion. We traffic in, um, in lies. We traffic in running and hiding from You. But you are a God of power and love, a God, who, a God who brings life. And so would you break through, either for the first time, man, for the thousandth time again, and let us see that we just can't outrun your grace and believe it and see it and begin to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.